0: To get started, visit plushcare.com dot slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Hi there, and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. Um, Today I'm going to talk about the very beginnings of Lyndon Johnson's administration following the assassination of John F. Kennedy um, and the difficulties that Johnson faced. Primarily the difficulty of overcoming the myth of John F. Kennedy that was... um, Developed almost from the moment of his death and which had its great inaugural moment at the highly kind of stage managed and choreographed funeral uh, for Kennedy, which was um, perhaps the, the the kind of the the, the most internationally attended and uh, fated um, burial of a world leader since uh, Edward VII's memorable funeral in 1910. The truth is, of course, John F. Kennedy is a highly mythologised president. Um, His presidency was cut short by his untimely assassination. Um, But the reality was his uh, achievements were checkered. He had a, a very weak mandate uh, arguably without the intervention of his father and uh, the uh, the Mafia in Chicago, uh, the chances are he would have been defeated by Richard Nixon in 1960. Uh, and Nixon was uh, a, a deeply resentful figure towards both John and Bobby Kennedy, um, throughout the uh, the period up to 1968 when uh, Nixon is elected to office. Johnson, um, Kennedy's vice president, uh, was propelled to power in unexpected circumstances. He had, uh, as vice president, uh, become a deeply depressive figure, one who saw the vice presidency, as many often do, as something of a non-job, something of a, a kind of like a backwater job, um, f- in no way fitting his own particular uh, talents and ambitions. And suddenly he was presented with this uh, an unparalleled opportunity. Um, the, the book I'm reading from tonight is The Excellent Landslide by Jonathan Darman. Uh, and it's a, a kind of like a parallel history uh, in the 1960s of um Lyndon Johnson and Ronald Reagan and about the the kind of the the, the meeting of two discourses uh, about the state uh, which kind of div- have divided America ever since the uh, uh the, the 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 Johnson view which was really um inherited from Roosevelt, the, his, his ideas about the great society, the fact that state spending and state intervention um, could dramatically alter uh, American society. And of course, there are limits to what states can achieve. And the Reaganite view, which kind of gestates throughout the 1960s and 70s in places like Orange County in California, that the state itself is the problem, this kind of low-tax right-wing libertarianism, uh, which for Reagan had been um, quite a kind of a political journey from being a New Dealer Democrat during the 1930s um, all the way to uh, embracing not just republicanism, but a particular strain, a particular um, fringe of republicanism, because the the um, the, the small-state, low-tax, libertarian ideology that propelled Reagan to power was a fringe idea throughout most of the uh, post-war, uh, post-war decades. Um, anyway, it's a Landslide is a great book and, and well worth reading. Um and Jonathan Darman writes that Johnson faced not only the myth of Kennedy but also the reality of Kennedy's administration because he didn't fe- he didn't replace or change any of Kennedy's cabinet or any of Kennedy's staff. He inherited Kennedy's west wing um, and was deeply suspicious of them uh, right from the beginning, particularly his attorney general on bobby kennedy jfk was buried on monday the 25th of november and we pick up the story that saturday so jonathan darman writes on saturday afternoon there'd been another unfortunate scene with bobby kennedy at the first cabinet meeting of johnson's presidency after the various department heads had gathered in the cabinet room johnson sitting in the president's place at the table started the meeting, taking the lead in the most formal setting he'd yet attempted, but something wasn't right. The Attorney General's chair was conspicuously empty. Its occupant was no farther away than the hallway. Tending a growing crop of resentment towards Johnson, Bobby Kennedy had thought about skipping the meeting and entered only after some strong pleading from Mac Bundy and George Bundy. The other cabinet members, seeing the fallen President's brother walk in, rose in respect. Johnson made a point of staying seated. Bobby looked at him in stunned disbelief. It was quite clear, Orville Freeman, the Agriculture Secretary later said, that he could hardly countenance Lyndon Johnson sitting in his brother's seat. What followed seemed like a scene out of Hamlet. The new president in the old president's place spoke coldly of the constitutional succession. Then Adlai Stevenson, the UN ambassador, rose to read a lengthy statement he had prepared ahead of time, praising Johnson's performance since the shooting. Stevenson, twice Democratic Party's nominee for president, had long been disdained by the Kennedys, who saw him as weak, the most unpardonable sin. To Bobby, Adlai's words were a few paragraphs on how nice Lyndon Johnson was, he would later say. It felt um I felt it was fine, just it struck me that he had read the damn thing. He had to read the damn thing. Secretary of State Dean Rusk, the senior cabinet member and another old target of Bobby's disdain, stood to offer tribute to um, and support. A nice little statement, Bobby would later would later say. Afterwards, somebody told me how impressed Lyndon was with Dean Rusk because he uh, he's the only one who spoke up at cabinet meetings. So I thought, what he wanted uh, What he wanted is declarations of loyalty, fidelity from all of us. However, the problems didn't just stem from Bobby Kennedy. Um, The entire uh, network of advisers and staffers and politicians that Kennedy had built around him in the first three years of his administration seemed like a, a hostile environment for Johnson to exist in. Um... The, by midday on that Saturday, the, the first real working day that Johnson had spent, um, Johnson had announced that he was going to keep uh, Kennedy's cabinet. There, would be, there were no letters of resignation from anybody either. Um, and he, uh, he said that none of these letters would be accepted. Um, the uh, Kennedy staffers and uh, cabinet members were still in you know deep trauma over what had happened um and he had um, johnson was able to kind of soft them a little bit by saying i need you more uh, than you need me which was a kind of a a sort of a, well, a standard uh, political line um and the the idea that really he he felt that this was his cabinet now um, there were those who liked Johnson um, and were happy to uh, become, um, led, to be led by him. Uh, George Bundy, for example, um, Bundy had been a great admirer of Kennedy um, and had said that the assassination had been uh, worse than the death of his own father. Um, and the uh, other figure who really embraced uh, Johnson was Robert McNamara, uh, the defense secretary, who had become uh, a a key part of the Kennedy administration, was devastated by the loss of Kennedy. If you ever watch um, Errol Morris's brilliant documentary *The Fog of War*, which features really a, a long one long interview with McNamara, it's part of how, it's part of the kind of the, how the, the kind of the myth of McNamara, the re, the re, repentant Vietnam hawk, uh, emerged very tearful when he's describing Kennedy's funeral at uh, Burial's at at, at Darlington Cemetery. Um, He became um, a a huge uh, supporter of Johnson. Jonathan Darman writes, Dean Rusk quickly made himself available as well. The Secretary of State had been a marginal figure under Kennedy, a president who had preferred to run his own foreign policy. But Rusk's stiff uh, propriety and bureaucrats speak, qualities that had bored the Kennedys to death, were a comfort to Johnson. And it was a comfort and a happy coincidence that these three men, Rusk, McNamara and Bundy, who were so ready to offer their allegiance, happened to be the administration's three senior civilian national security officials. Meeting with these men, Johnson began to look like a president. On Sunday, they joined him to hear a report from Ambassador Lodge on the situation in South Vietnam. So if we're talking about things that Johnson inherited from Kennedy, Vietnam is obviously the chief one. Um, by 1963, uh, there was a, a significant um, dearth of interest for most Americans in the issue of Vietnam. Most Americans were um, barely thinking about Vietnam, and it had not really registered on the political agenda uh, per se, largely because the draft hadn't been instituted uh, at this point. Um, most Americans had little understanding of Vietnam and little uh, focus on it, but Johnson did. Um, Johnson understood deeply the, the scope of the problems ...in Vietnam and had to make decisions about what to do. Um, Obviously, Vietnam had been an American policy... ...since the Truman years... um, ...and following the French defeat at the NBN Phu... ...very quickly, America became uh, deeply involved. Uh, Vietnam was partitioned into two zones... ...at the 17th parallel, a communist north and a non-communist south of the capital in Saigon. And the fear uh, that pervaded um, the Pentagon and the White House was that should South Vietnam fall, then this notion of the domino theory of a communist uh, wave across Southeast Asia, and uh, possibly even the Pacific, uh, would Um, And as a result, America becomes the patron to the client state of uh, South Vietnam, uh, led by President Ngo Dinh Diem, um, a highly corrupt and um, uh, unpopular uh, South Vietnamese Catholic leader. So, again, Jonathan Darman writes, South Vietnam had been a canker throughout the Kennedy presidency, the Viet Cong, the, North-backed, uh, the, the North Vietnamese-backed communist insurgency, waged a brutal and effective campaign against the Saigon government. They were supported by a growing number of peasants in the South Vietnamese countryside. As the situation deteriorated, the Kennedy administration bankrolled an expansion of the South Vietnamese army and sent several thousand military personnel to serve as, as advisers in South Vietnam. The administration grew exasperated with its client Diem, who it considered a hapless defender of the regime, who had needlessly antagonised his people by oppressing the country's Buddhist majority. Three weeks before Kennedy's death, a group of South Vietnamese generals had, with tacit US approval, overthrown the Diem regime and gone on to assassinate Diem and his brother. The bloody conclusion had demoralised Kennedy. By the time he travelled to Dallas, he was deeply pessimistic about the chances of success for his his administration's policy in Indochina so the the war obviously outlives the president um and it defeated not just kennedy um uh, but also johnson as well johnson by 1968 is essentially in a state of nervous exhaustion as a result of the war and decides that he will not re- um uh, stand for president that year um the pres with the um, uh, the death of Kennedy, Johnson inherits the problem. There are there is a, a kind of a classic quagmire theory of uh, Vietnam that presidents from Truman to Eisenhower to Kennedy to Johnson to Nixon uh, handed on problem after problem after problem when it came to Vietnam. Each situation that was inherited got slightly worse. Uh, so um, the pre one president was essentially trying to make sense of the situation that had emerged under their predecessor, um, and the and had as a result of each successive crisis or each successive disaster uh, for America even less room to manoeuvre until. Nixon uh, uh, only, Nixon's only choices, really, are the way in which to, uh, to withdraw. So the first thing that Johnson heard was some fairly grim news from his new advisers. The post-DM regime in Saigon was just as incompetent as DM had been, and there was no chance that any South Vietnamese government could withstand the Communists without direct US military involvement, Partly because of poor, uh, uh, poor fighting uh, morale, uh, but also because of mass, um, a a mass sort of dearth of civilian morale. The regime is deeply unpopular. Civilians don't wish to uh, support it, and the um, Army of the Republic of North Vietnam. Has been equipped by China and to some extent the Soviet Union, and if you listen to um, a whole series of podcasts I did a few months ago, I think on uh, the fall of French Indochina. Um, by the time by by 1954, the ARVN had been uh, equipped and trained into being an impressive fighting force. Uh, a a formidable um, uh, and large uh, military formation. Johnson had been to Vietnam in 1961. He'd met President Diem and shaken his hand. Um, Johnson also knew the problems that presidents had faced since 1954. And he was no Boy Scout when it, it came to Vietnam. And it would be his decisions in 1964 and 1965 that would escalate the fighting in Vietnam uh, beyond all, uh, all, all all previous records, um, and escalate troop commitments by 1968 up until uh, about half a million. In many ways, Democrat presidents had a harder time than Republicans when it came to uh, overseas wars. Uh, the reason for that is from about 1946 onwards... The Republicans had very effectively, um, hugely, uh, with huge great degree of falsehood, but very effectively, implied that the Democrats were soft on communism. Um, the fact that a, a Democrat president, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, um, while gravely ill, had um, seen that uh, had held the country together during the Second World War, uh, and had uh, essentially died on the job, um, was kind of sort of swept aside, rather, by the myth that not only are Democrat presidents soft on communism, uh, but also uh, tend to lose wars for the country. Um, th- this was something that preyed on Johnson's mind. He didn't want to hand the Republicans any uh, ammunition, by appearing to be backtracking on, on on Vietnam, and his solemn pledge was that uh, he and his uh, and, and his presidency would not lose Vietnam, um, and there would be no kind of uh, no reversals, no backtracking. Now, as I previously mentioned, the there was a suspicion in the mind of Johnson that the White House, the Kennedy. White House that he had inherited was not a safe place for his political ambitions, and and this is true. Um, The already within uh, weeks of uh, the uh, inauguration of Johnson, Kennedy loyalists were starting to suggest that uh, Bobby seek the Democratic nomination for 1964 um, with perhaps Hubert Humphrey as a running mate um, in order for this to happen it was uh, observed at the time Johnson uh, who had was in the midst of his kind of presidential honeymoon period would have to uh, drop the ball in quite a spectacular way so The thing that Johnson couldn't do anything about was the legend of Kennedy himself. Um, And so he he came to the White House knowing that he wouldn't really be able to eclipse the the ghost of Kennedy. Um, The idea that Kennedy's years had been this magnificent Camelot. Certainly uh, the people uh, within the Kennedy administration... Uh, saw it as a time of kind of endeavour and vigour and excitement and, and and dynamism and also a youthfulness. They almost were very extremely young there compared to uh, to Johnson. Um, but a lot of this is, is is indeed kind of myth and 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 fantasy. Uh, so what the uh, decision? And it was a very astute decision by Johnson. Um, was not to try to eclipse the myth of Kennedy, but to to use it to kind of um, to leverage it. Uh, and this is what he did. So the Kennedy myth was greatly divorced from the Kennedy reality, which was a presidency of fair degree of averageness, if not uh, mediocrity. Now, Jonathan Darman writes, um, it was in that problem that Johnson saw his opening. For the Kennedys to have their myth, they needed some Kennedy accomplishments, legislative accomplishments, and legislative accomplishments was something Lyndon Johnson knew how to deliver. Uh, he was uh, Robert Caro's famous biography of Johnson, is Master of the Senate, uh, and he knew how to uh, twist arms to get people to vote in the right way. Here was his chance to change the story. Subtly but unmistakably, the Monday of the funeral, he met with the nation's governors, who were assembled in the capital for the services. In tribute to the late president, he told them, he would make an all-out push for Kennedy's languishing legislative priorities, the tax cut uh, and the civil rights bill. He was promising a huge tax cut to stimulate the economy, and obviously the civil rights bill was um, perhaps the, the, the great moral achievement of uh, Kennedy's and Johnson's era. With these goals, would it not be disrespectful of Kennedy's memory for Johnson to seize the reins of power and lead the nation out of the swamp? It would be honouring Kennedy's memory. Years later, Johnson described his thinking to the historian Doris Kearns Goodwin. Everything I have ever learned in the history books taught me that martyrs have to die for causes. John Kennedy had died, but his cause was not really clear. That was my job. The Kennedy legend, which seemed at first like a weight around Johnson's neck, would in fact be his means to rise. He would take the story that Kennedy's courtiers and family were telling and use it as his pretext for setting the country's eyes on him. The possibilities were endless. The country would watch him as he won, John F. Kennedy's battle, uh, and after a while, people would get used to watching him do great things. Until that was the only story on everyone's mind. Carrying out Kennedy, uh, the work of Kennedy's thousand days, he would earn himself an even greater thousand days of his own. So it's really interesting to look at Johnson. In a way, perhaps more interesting than examining Kennedy himself. Uh, as I say, a greatly mythologized and highly misunderstood, and indeed overrated president. Uh, Johnson being a far wilier political operator uh, and one who was quite comfortable with using Kennedy's um, contested legacy for his own ends. Anyway, I hope you found this useful and interesting. Do come and join us in the Explaining History Facebook group where we uh, post and chat about uh, all matters historical and contemporary. And you can check us out on Patreon. Of course, we uh, get by here on a little sliver of advertising revenue, but also through the kindness and generosity of our patrons. Uh, Thanks very much, everybody, and look forward to catching you on the next podcast. All the best. Bye-bye.